Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. I have a special announcement. The brand new Reimagining Love Workbook, Volume 1, is now on sale on my website. You know, when I set out to create this podcast, I knew that I wanted the lessons and the insights from the episodes to feel tangible and immediately applicable to you and your relationships. As a couples therapist, I've seen time and time again that improving your relationships and your relationship with yourself takes effort and intention and time. We need strategies, we need practices that we can play with, as well as structured spaces to reflect. And sometimes the best way to do this is to put pen to paper, to see what's going on inside of our minds and inside of our hearts. So I decided that I would create companion worksheets for all of the solo deep dive episodes of Reimagining Love. These worksheets contain tables to fill out, relational self-awareness questions to answer, and reflection exercises, all tied to the topic of the episode. And these worksheets have been available to listeners through my newsletter as the corresponding episodes have aired. And now I've updated all of them and we've compiled them into this downloadable, easy to use workbook so that you can conveniently access them all in one place. And at the end of the workbook, you're going to find a glossary of the therapeutic terms that I frequently use, as well as a list of all the podcast episodes thus far organized by topic in case you're seeking support in a particular area at a particular moment. So if you're ready to dive deeper into your relational self-awareness work, 
click the link in the show notes or head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash RL workbook to purchase this amazing bundle of resources, which you can use individually or with your partner. Hi there. I'm so glad that you're joining me for today's episode. The feeling of stuckness is a familiar one for all of us. Whether you're struggling to break a bad habit, feeling paralyzed even when you know that you need to leave a job or a relationship, or find yourself in the same frustrating dynamics with family or friends, this feeling of stuck is likely there for you, and we often don't have a path forward to getting unstuck. So my wonderful guest for today, Britt Frank, has written an incredible guide all about carving a path out of these situations called The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. Britt is a licensed neuropsychotherapist and trauma expert who's trained in internal family systems and somatic experiencing. In addition to her private practice, Britt is also a speaker and an award-winning adjunct instructor at the University of Kansas, where she's taught classes on ethics, addiction, and clinical social work. In this conversation, Britt breaks down so many of the practical takeaways in her book for us, and we discuss a whole manner of situations that have this quality of stuckness, from creative ruts to unhealthy relationships to substance addictions. I hope you're going to find takeaways that you connect with in this conversation, and I'm really excited for you to get to know Britt. And I want to just give you a quick content warning before we begin that this conversation does mention unsafe relationships and sexual violence. Britt, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, good. I have too, because I am fascinated by the topic of stuckness. I feel like I spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about particularly relational stuckness, relational ambivalence. Should I stay or should I go? So then when I found your book, The Science of Stuck, I was like, okay, we got to do this. So I'm really glad that you're here, and I'm excited to to break down all of the beautiful ways that you invite us to think about and work with our experiences of stuckness. Thank you so much. I like the word stuck so much better than the word trauma or you know the science of your brain's neural pathways. All that stuff's great, but everyone knows stuckness. Not everybody identifies as the other things. I mean, I do, but not everyone identifies as I don't have trauma or I don't have an issue here. It's like, okay, but you know what it's like to be stuck because you're human. So welcome to the party. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The other thing is we we may discover by the end of this conversation that we truly are soul sisters, because I don't know if I've ever known somebody who seems to have the kind of infinite respect for charts that you have. I mean, this, like the charts and the tables and the diagrams, I was like, oh, you are speaking my language. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I find so much comfort in the, like, here's where a chart starts oh. and here's where it stops. And it's just bite-sized pieces of it. A, a good chart, like, give me a good chart any day. Like, that's my love language <laughs> is charts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We have to go offline and figure out what's your favorite. You know, how do you build them? What are your tips? Oh, which is so lovely. Okay. But before we dive in to the science of stuck, 
I would love for you to talk with us about um, the relational self-awareness question. So may I ask you the question that I ask all of our Reimagining Love guests? Sure. Okay. So Britt, what is a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you lately? Oh, oh, so many places I can take that. So, okay. Does it have to be a person or can it be a relationship with a thing? Can it be just wherever I go with this? You're going to analyze my answer, but that's fine. Okay. (laughs) Okay. How do I want? Okay. So a growing edge in my relationship with creativity, that that's been a, an interesting one because after a lot of banging my head, my, my primary relational relationships with other humans seem to be generally working, but bringing creativity out, dusting it off and developing a relationship with that has been very interesting and pushing me to very uncomfortable places and sometimes beautiful places. And the thing I learned is creativity is sort of like a little kid. Like it'll hit you on the head with truth. It'll tell you what's up. And if you listen to it, you may find some really interesting, helpful nuggets if you don't take it personally when it shares its feedback. (laughs) Are you rekindling an old relationship with creativity or do you think this is kind of a new relationship for you with creativity? Both and. So I took piano as a kid. I was a theater nerd, all of that. And as an adult, I've been very buttoned up and I don't want to be bad at something and I don't want to look like an idiot. So I've started piano lessons again. I have started aerial hoop lessons. So I do circus performance, which is something that no grown up has any business doing. And it's <laughs> so marvelous and magical and awful and beautiful and nauseating and fabulous. But you learn a lot about yourself being willing to be bad and being willing to make a mess out of your creative process because you don't get to anything good without being real bad first. Oof. So. Okay. Well, that is one big old takeaway for listeners right now. Like, okay, so. What is your relationship like with your creativity? And what are the ways in which you have lost your creativity? Do you ever get little kind of whispers inside of you about that love you used to have? And how might it show up in your life again? Because what you're reminding us or teaching us is that there's a lot we can learn from being willing to be bad, especially in a creative realm, and that there's lots of growth there. And fun. I mean, people can be complicated, but creativity is is frustrating and messy and mucky, but it's always glad you came. Like your creativity will always be happy that you decided to spend some time with it. And that's not true for all other humans. It's usually true with animals and creativity that it can be messy and gross, but it's always glad you came. That's so true. (laughs) Oh, what a sweet way of talking about creativity. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. So this book, The Science of Stuck, you do so much in this book. You, in order to help us understand why we get stuck and what to do about it, you bring together science, clinical wisdom, a ton of pop culture, spirituality, practical tools, and your own journey, your own journey through your life. And it's incredibly user-friendly. So can you talk to us about your journey to this book? 
Yeah. So I think everyone has a book in them. I think every single human has a story. Um, I wrote this book because this is the book I needed when I was really just a hot mess of a disaster of efforting to be an adult person. I was a drug addict, sex addict, relational addict, a codependent. I had childhood trauma. I had adulthood trauma. I had some trauma that I caused in reaction to the childhood trauma, like all of the things. And I got a lot of really good help and a lot of really bad help. And I tried the extreme versions of a lot of different things, including like fundamentalist cult life and I'm going to be the best worst and lots of things. And I found that I love a good dive personally, but when you're in the middle of a crisis, you don't want to sit and analyze the stack of research and the stack of books. I'm like, can somebody please give me a cliff's guide to the brain? I need one place. I need one book where I'm sitting in the bathroom in my tub crying. And if I open it, there's going to be some nugget I can grab and not have to really, really wrestle to understand. Like I love reading Carl Jung, but it always puts me to sleep and I have to really focus and be really in that headspace. I didn't want to write that book. I wanted to write the book that I needed, which is little nuggets of things you can pick up and grab and read in any order. And I love synthesizing all of the different worlds. And pop culture is fun. And there's no reason why neuroscience and philosophy and clinical psychology needs to be such a snooze fest. Like, Mm -hmm. let's make it fun. (laughs) You did. I mean, you, <laughs> you did. I was like, holy shit. Okay, now we're in Carl Jung, but now we're talking about the Adams family and you keep your reader right there with you. So bravo to you. And I think there's something like, I'm just thinking about, you know, I'm older than you, but I'm younger than, you know, many of the really key mentors in this field. And there's something about you, like your generation of clinicians that are coming up that are, you know, I think that my generation probably started to say, I can be a therapist and show you who I am as a human. You know, I think we started to play with that as women entered the field, as people of color entered the field, there was less this need to split the experts and the healthy people and the sick people apart. And I think my generation kind of moved that forward. And I'm just watching your generation. It's quite seamless, right? You are a clinician and you are somebody who has known these depths and you are moving between those realms really, really seamlessly. Thank you. I don't think it does anybody a service to have this othering. And even when I was in graduate school, there was the strengths perspective, which is all humans are, you know, have dignity and worth, but there was still this very finite line of keep your boundaries, don't show who you are. And I think there's a way in which you can keep your boundaries. I'm very boundaried as a clinician, but I've had more people come to me. Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? You are, totally. Okay. I've had more people come to me saying, I heard you say fuck on a podcast, and that's why I wanted to work with you. Like, forget (laughs) the fact that I actually am trained in the things that I say I do, but there is a way that people need witnessing to their pain, and that just can't happen when you're sitting on your you know, I am up here, as, and I've done psychoanalysis with the old school clinician giving you nothing, and it, it's interesting. It, it has its place. Everything does. But, oh, my God, I would so much rather be in the soup. I can be boundaried and tell my clients that I love them, which I do, and in a healthy, disciplined, strategic way, I'm happy to share that because, like, it's the love that connects, that heals, not necessarily the modality that we're practicing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So stuckness is hard to define. So you use metaphors throughout the book to kind of capture what you're talking about when you talk about stuckness and what it's like to move through. And one of the metaphors that you use is from Robert Keegan, who describes that stuck is like trying to drive a car with your feet both on the gas and on the brakes. You have one 
foot pressed down on the gas, which is your good intentions, and one foot slammed down on the brake, which is acting in opposition to those good intentions. So what do you help us understand and operationalize? Like, what are you talking about when you're talking about stuck? So my disclaimer, and this is so important to me to be responsible in the world as a therapist, for people who are in oppressive environments where there is, you know, like systemic racism, social inequality, poverty, natural disaster, those are not the situations to which I claim to have any information or help of any kind. I refer to stuckness as you have the resources, you have a base amount of safety, and there's no logical reason why this gap between what you say you want and what you're doing is a mile wide. So stuck to me is given all of the things being present, safety, clean water, enough food, all of that, or relative safety. Nevertheless, we're not doing the things. You say you want to have good sleep hygiene, but it's 3 a.m. and you're doom scrolling. You say you want a healthy relationship, but you're dating the same person over and over. And no shame. I did that for a long time. No shame at all. But stuck is the, I'm doing a thing and there's no logical reason why. And so I just attribute it to, I'm just broken, or I just have a broken picker if it's a relational stuckness, or I just have an addictive personality and that's why I'm stuck in X, Y, or Z. And I called it the science of stuck because amazingly, it's not a character defect or a personality brokenness or any type of deficiency that keeps us stuck. There's science behind it to explain. A car runs out of gas. It's not broken. It's just out of gas. So go to the gas station. Yeah. Well, in that reframe, you aren't broken. You aren't crazy. You are stuck. In doing that, you do two things at once. You strip away the shame and you also say, okay, so then put your feet at the freaking fire and let's look at what's getting in the way. So you like do these two. It's compassionate, but it's also like, like step it up because there's stuff you can be doing and I will talk you through it. But we're not going to just sit here and shrug our shoulders about it. And, you know, people equate compassion with co-signing on suboptimal behaviors. And it's all the same thing. You can be completely <laughs> shame-free and be loving and kind and compassionate and be completely unwilling to tolerate bullshit and to be willing to pat someone on the head and be like, oh, you know, the gas tank is empty. I have endless compassion. Your car is out of gas and you're stranded. That sucks. Like, that sucks. And the gas station is up the road and I'll help you push. So it is a both hand. It's shame's not necessary. Compassion is fully available. And let's get moving because the whole, <laughs> there's nothing I can do is just not true. Like that's just not, it's just, it's bullshit. It's not true. <laughs> that's right. So you say that when we feel stuck, we actually don't need readiness. We just need willingness. What's the difference between being ready and being willing? This whole, like, I must feel motivated before I do the thing. I need to make sure I have all the gear and I have the right accessories and the right things. And then when I feel it, then I can do it. It's like, I don't know anyone who has accomplished anything from a state of readiness. Like, I am now ready to get married, have a baby, launch a business, write a book, do a thing, whatever the thing might be. Um, you don't need to be ready. You need to be willing. Willingness is action-oriented. Readiness is emotion-focused. So you don't need your emotions to match your actions to take an action. And often when we're like, I, I need to feel it to do it, then we spin. Because a lot of good things don't feel good while they're doing, you know, while you're doing it doesn't feel good. And a lot of things that are terrible for you, like drugs, feel really feel good really while good. you're doing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the lines in your book is you very rarely feel a positive rush after making a good decision. So there's not, you have to look, the reward for making a good decision isn't the immediate rush you get. It's a different kind of reward. That's a really helpful thing to break down. 
And it's an awful, annoying like quirk. Of, it's like, really? Wait a second. How come when I'm smoking meth, I feel like I can take on the world. And when I eat something healthy, I feel like my stomach's cramping and I'm going to die. Or if I get up in the, it's like making a good decision does not yield the immediate sense of dopamine, but it's a sustainable thing that eventually will lead you somewhere good. Whereas the instant dopamine hit that doesn't work. That leads you nowhere good very quickly. No. Well, this whole idea of, of teasing apart readiness and willingness is another way that you are saying, okay, so loving. I'm being very loving with you and very gentle with you, but also telling you stop with this idea that you can't start until you feel ready. You start by being willing and taking an action, doing something different. In fact, you say that in trauma work, there's a, you know, kind of a thing that trauma therapists say that a different kind of bad is good. So why is that? Isn't that fun? So I'm sure you've experienced this too. You know, any coach or anyone in the helping profession has heard someone say, I'm doing all the right things and I don't feel any better. In fact, I feel worse. Now I'm antsy. I'm edgy, I'm restless because there's this whole withdrawal detox, you know, when you're creating a new neural pathway, you have to detox off of the old way, which is really unpleasant. And so as long as it's a different bad, it's like, well, it used to be that I was doing quote bad by numbing out and getting in trouble and creating chaos for myself. Now I'm doing bad because I'm lonely and I feel like crap all the time. And I'm so aware of my body and all these feelings. It's like, yeah, but that's a different bad and a different bad means something has shifted. And if something has shifted, you by definition are not stuck anymore. Like it's bad, but it's a different bad, which is good. So a different bad is good. A different bad is good. And you, you also are getting us away from this binary of bad, good here. Then if it's like the old bad and the new bad, okay, now we're still in bad, but now we've got to kind of tease apart. What's the difference of how the old one felt and the new one felt. And it's a, so you're, you're also like busting up this idea that the only way you feel different is if you feel good all the time, right? So it's different kinds of uncomfortable feelings and growing our ability to be with them. I love that you said that different kind of uncomfortable because it's really what we're talking. I don't even like the binary of good or bad. I don't like the binary positive and negative. It's like, let's just look at what's true here. What's true here is that there's a lot of uncomfortable stuff, but what's equally true is you can be uncomfortable by doing the thing or uncomfortable by trying to avoid the thing. But the truth is you're going to be uncomfortable either way. So let's take the value judgments and the good and the bad off of it and just go with what's true about this decision that you're making. I hate the way I feel. I hate everything. Okay. But what's true is that you're off drugs, which is good. What's true is you're not going on Tinder 10 times a day and doing X, Y, and Z. And that's good. So if we can evaluate the discomfort as a what's true about it versus how does it feel, then we can stay out of stuck and stay on a path to somewhere we actually want to go. That's so huge. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes.
Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. When I was reading that part of the book, I was thinking about the couples that I work with. And when I give them homework, I will say, when you come back next week, I want to hear how it went poorly, like all the ways that it went sideways, right? Because it's not going to go, we're not going to move from this old pattern to some perfection, whatever the hell that means. But the places where you experience discomfort or get off track, like that directs us to what needs to be refined. And it ends up being something that then when they come back and tell me how it went sideways, I can celebrate A, that you guys tried it, right? Because to try to take my homework and go and try and do anything with it, you are no longer stuck. You are no longer doing things exactly the same way. And you're coming back with feedback that lets us course correct and tweak and modify. So that's, I think, like I know as therapists, right, we're very often like kind of preempting this idea of when you try something different, come back and talk about what feels lousy about it or what quote didn't work about it because that gives us the next iteration. I love that so much and because people think the opposite of stuck is success and it's not. The opposite of stuck is unstuck and unstuck doesn't have to feel good or work. Unstuck means you tried the tool. For your couples, unstuck means we tried X, Y, and Z and it went totally sideways and it didn't work, but now you're not stuck. So the opposite of stuck is not success. The opposite of stuck is unstuck. And then eventually after enough practice and trial and error, you can maneuver your way to a good outcome. But it's almost never the case that you go from stuck to woo. It's stuck to go and then go to step one and then off you go. And couples work is tricky because you have so many nervous systems and parts in the room that I don't do couples therapy. I have immense respect for those who do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and sometimes, sometimes the way that the homework goes sideways is that they, it like lets them laugh together about how ridiculous I am. So it creates this like bond (laughs) together about what is Solomon having us do this week? What the hell? And I'll take that, right? Like turn on me. That's lovely. (laughs) (laughs) The couple against the problem. Oh my God. (laughs) So, okay. You, very early in the book, you flip our understanding of anxiety on its head. You say anxiety does not keep you stuck. Anxiety is a map that leads you out of stuck. How is that possible? And everyone hates that. And my disclaimer is, you know, I grew up in New York. I grew up in a very Jewish family. We were bathed in a sea of anxiety. Like I swam in a womb filled with anxiety. I have had anxiety and panic and hypochondria and OCD. Like I've, I understand how debilitating and sometimes life-threatening and awful anxiety is. So I am in no way minimizing the experience of that affect state. However, what is the function of anxiety? It's the same thing as your check engine light. When your check engine light comes on on your car, the light is annoying, but it's not the problem. It's going, hey, you have a problem. Anxiety is the same thing. So when people come to me, especially in the early stages of lockdown with, I have an anxiety disorder. I'm like, do you though? Or is it that the world is on fire? All of a sudden you can't go anywhere or do anything. All of your resources have been stripped away. Now you're homeschooling and you're concerned about your friends and your family. Is that an anxiety disorder or is that a series of very uncomfortable sensations brought about by a really un really like not good environment. And not everyone can identify, well, why do I feel uncomfortable? Because clearly everything is fine. 
that's great, but your brain gets to interpret what's fine, what's not fine, what's safe, what's unsafe, and that's an automatic process. And so in a fight between your autonomic nervous system and your logic, your nervous system is going to win every single time. So rather than why this, do I feel this way? This is stupid. It's like, I feel anxious. My brain is trying to either point me toward a current threat or something it's afraid will happen in the future or an injury from the past. Sometimes what we think is a fear of the future is just a callback to a time in the past where we felt the thing. Mm -hmm. That's a really important reminder that the anxiety is the blinking indicator light on the dashboard. The anxiety isn't the problem. The anxiety is signaling you. It's an invitation to turn attention inward. And then who knows where it goes, right? It's some tie between the present moment and the past. It's some fear about what's next. It's a need for sleep, movement, food, water, music, whatever, you don't know. Like that's the question mark, but it's very different to relate to the anxiety as an indicator or an invitation versus we have to medicate or sometimes anxiety does need to be medicated. Um, We have to treat the anxiety directly. It's almost like Like when you're playing pool, you have to hit the one ball to get to the other ball. Yes. Mm -hmm. And with anxiety and with a lot of the men with depression, with a lot of what the clinical world used to call these pathologies, we forget that there's an entire board full of balls on it. It's use your analogy. And it's like, we just so focused on this is the problem. It's like, no, there's like a whole thing happening in this ecosystem. But anxiety is so awful. I do understand the temptation to forget that there's an entire game board playing out here. That anxiety is, is a symptom. It's problematic, but it's not the problem. It's the symptom. Yeah. If someone is stuck or when we are stuck, you are going to want us to examine the sneaky benefits that we are getting from being stuck. And no one is going to like this part of the conversation. Nope. We'll just <laughs> we'll just tee that up right now. That this, this part is where you, listener, are going to get pissed off. Because what Britt tells us is if you dig under most unhealthy behaviors, you'll find hidden rewards. And this feels counterintuitive because the dead-end job is objectively unpleasant. The dysfunctional relationship is objectively stressful. So how can things that feel painful have hidden rewards. And again, my disclaimer with this is there's no shame involved and there's no blame involved. I can sit here and say, did I deserve some of the things that happened to me? No. But did I benefit from being in bad relationships? Yes. Did I benefit from my drug addiction? Yes. Like what benefit could that possibly give? That was so bad. Yes, it was so bad. And as long as I was doing stupid things over here on the left, I didn't have to look at the really unpleasant, painful things on the right. So the benefits to staying stuck, we have to totally uncouple them from blame and shame because otherwise you can't look at it. It's impossible. You get just annihilated by the shame. However, benefits to staying stuck are avoidance, distraction, image preservation. You know, if you're in a relationship that's really not working, as long as you're in it, you don't have to deal with everyone's perceptions of you. A lot of people find when significant partnerships break up, you lose a friends and there's a lot of collateral damage to undoing that. When you stop using drugs, you definitely lose all of your friends because misery loves company and health can be lonely and success can be lonely. So it's really important not to shame yourself, but to get really honest and go, what am I benefiting? And when people say there's no benefits to this, well, that's never true. All behavior is functional. 
all behavior, even bad behavior serves a purpose. So is it that you don't have to risk failure? If you're not doing anything, you don't have to worry about failing at anything. If you don't step up and own your space, you don't have to worry about boundary setting or people not liking the boundaries that you're setting. So there's a lot, invest, our brains are invested in maintaining this very precise homeostasis and all change, even good change is going to disrupt that. Doesn't mean it's bad, but it is uncomfortable. Well, when we point our lens in this direction of hidden benefits, it has to have that big caveat, just exactly the way that you gave it. We're not, we're not ever doing victim blaming. We're not ever doing shaming. It's not about that. And in some ways, as you're, as you're talking us through that, there's this paradoxical piece where if somebody's able to start to get honest about the hidden benefits, it's further evidence that the person isn't crazy right? That the person isn't stupid. So there's a way in which like paradoxically looking at these hidden benefits is like, oh, there was a function to this. There was a thing that it served because so often the narrative is how could I be so stupid to stay in this place? How could I, I said, I want to be different and I'm not different. What's wrong with me? And so when you're saying, when, when we kind of go in that side door and look at the hidden benefits, you have the four P's prevents discomfort, protects you from emotions, promotes connection, points to problems. Those four Ps, any or all of those four Ps, is pointing you towards the wisdom of your stuckness or the the physics of your stuckness, right? Like the counter pull. I'm saying I want to stop drinking, but there's these pulls. I'm saying I want a new job, but there's these pulls. So there's a way in which it's a massive invitation to self-efficacy and to like knowing that you are that you're smarter than you feel like you are right now in this moment. Truly. And, you know, I've, I've worked in inpatient addiction treatment. And when people come in just so covered in the shame of what they've done, the first assignment that I always gave people when they came in was not think about what you've done. What have you destroyed? And yes, there's a lot of repair that needs to happen. But the very first objective is write a letter to your addiction, thanking it for keeping you alive. Because if it hadn't done its job, I'm not co-signing on the behaviors. I am saying if your addiction hadn't done its job, you would not be alive. So before we go through the let's dismantle all of the choices and take accountability and repair relational ruptures, we have to start by dear addiction. Thank you for keeping me alive. And then it's sort of like a breakup because you've had this thing with you for, you know, my addiction was with me longer than any other relationship I had ever had. I grieved, even though obviously it was bad and I needed to not do the things. Oh, it was sad. Like, but these were my people, places, and things. This was my routine. This is what I know. And so we have to start by behavior functionality, not behavior morality. When you get into the morality of it first, you spin. Like, deal with the morality and your own personal ethos later. Let's just start with the function of every behavior is to protect you or to conserve or to in some way keep you small and away from pain. Doesn't make it okay. But like you said, it does. There's no such thing as a crazy person. Everyone's Mm-mm. stuff makes sense up close. Everyone's stuff makes sense up close. Getting into one of the ones when you're talking about how one of the hidden benefits can be promotes connection. And the example you use is growing up with a highly anxious mom. And so then to be anxious with an anxious mom who's anxious because of her own loss of her mother, to be anxious was to be close to her, right? To work with your anxiety differently, to heal, to become different from her is to lose a kind of connection with her. That So that's a sneaky one as well, right? That if we are, one of the hidden benefits can be, it keeps me close to you because we are both the same in this way, or this is our easy avenue for connection. And so that 
right there is a tremendous risk to risk the rupture of the relationship or the need to renegotiate the relationship if I start getting different and healthy. And the reality is, and a lot of people will say to me, well, what what do I do when X, Y, and Z happens in my relationships? And the ugly truth, which is always better to the shiny lie, the ugly truth is that your your relationships are going to change and some of them will probably end as a result of you being happier and healthier and doing the things you want to do. And that's sad and it's tragic. And again, grief is the four-letter ugly word of this rah-rah positivity culture. But grief underneath every single habitual pattern, bad decision, compulsion, whatever, is always unresolved grief. So if we're willing to know that all good change is going to require some degree of grief, then we're not going to be so afraid to walk into it. Yep. There is no bypassing the grief. There's only trusting ourselves to be with it, having support around it. Okay, so in that part of the book, so each of your chapters ends with this five-minute challenge, which is, again, like, that is your that is your gift to everybody and their suffering. It's like, I am going to walk you through this as user-friendly as possible. So there's these five-minute challenges at the end. And then the and that one has a chart, because we love them, where you list Uh, the behavior, the cost of continuing the behavior, the benefit of continuing the behavior, and the benefit of changing the behavior. Do you think that you, I'm putting you on the spot, but could you talk us through one of those, like how somebody might fill out one? I was thinking you could do it with drinking alcohol, but it could be anything where you kind of talk through that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a tool taken right out of the page of every business person's book. It's a cost-benefit analysis. You know, when we get into the wellness world, it's, I know all of these things are bad and I want to feel good. And again, you have to look at both the cost column and the benefit column. So I'll use myself and I'll use my pattern of being in really, really toxic relationships. So the cost to that, there was safety issues, financial issues, psychological issues, emotional issues. The list goes on. There were very, very real problems. Those were great costs, but the benefits column, look, this is so gross. And with my therapist, it was, I'm like, please don't make me say it, but I had to, because you can't change what you're not willing to name. The benefits, as long as I was with somebody worse than me, I was quote good. And I didn't have to deal with any of my own shit. Like, eek, that's yucky. It doesn't mean I deserved it, but yuck, but truth. Okay, fine. Being in a relationship often affords you access to people and social connection and community and finances and esteem. And that was another, ugh, like that's super gross too. And so I had to fill up that benefit column. And then the cost of continuing the behavior were going to be like, I wasn't going to survive. You know, I was going to be completely non-functional or dead. That's where this was going. And so benefits, costs, uh, analyze, but you can't analyze if it's incomplete. If I was only looking at the cost column, then it's, why didn't she leave? Why didn't she report? Okay, well, there are reasons. And none of them have to do with weakness, stupidity, or failure, or craziness. Oh, like my heart is like so full as you describe like how much you endured and survived. And so I'm like with you in that, like just in empathy for your journey, while also my heart is so full of gratitude for the work that you did so that we all get so that, you know, so that you're as that's the thing that we see on Instagram all the time so that your journey becomes somebody else's roadmap. I wish that it could have been that way without you having to suffer and survive what you suffered and survived. And I love that you are, have you taken your journey and done with it what you've done with it? 
Thank you. You know, I really love, there's a lot I don't love about the 12-step world. I have, I will stand on soapboxes and rant in opposition to much of what happens in that world. And I will stand on another soapbox and equally proclaim the beauty and the gifts of it. One of the gifts of the 12-step world is this idea, and I'm quoting from their stuff, you will neither regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And so it's not this toxic positive of my trauma. You can't, you know, was everything happens for a reason. And without my trauma, I wouldn't be who I am today. It's like, I would not want to go back and repeat it. I don't believe everything happens for a reason. Nevertheless, I don't regret my past. I wouldn't change anything about my path. And I don't need to shut the door on it because it's in the book that you can go get and read. So, you know, it's out there. It's out there. No, there's no hiding. Yeah. Okay. Well, so you spend some time talking about family of origin and the kinds of stuckness that we certainly can experience in our relationship with our family of origin. And one of the things that you do is you ask us to stop thinking about our family of origin as good or bad, going back to the idea of the binary, and to start to think about a family of origin as emotionally skilled versus emotionally unskilled. Why? Why does that shift matter? I'm laughing because when I was writing the family chapter, I still wanted to just punch the crap out of families. Be like, this is toxic. This is dysfunctional. You're all terrible. And I'm like, okay, pull back. Maybe there's some, maybe there's some projecting happening here. Maybe happy families bother you because you didn't get to actually have that. And then it's like, you know, there are the outliers where obviously there's, well, it's not even an outlier. There are plenty of families who are toxic and hostile and abusive and traumatic and terrible, but there's also like on the bell curve, the majority of families are really not wanting to cause great harm and they're not doing anything that's super quote bad. And then it's really a question of being unskilled versus being toxic. And so I settled on people in traumatic dysfunctional families. You can look at it and name it like that's bad. And that's pretty clear, but emotionally skilled versus unskilled sort of just falls by the wayside and doesn't get addressed because unskillful family dynamics can still cause a lot of harm, even though they were never intended to. And so I felt like calling that chapter emotionally skilled versus emotionally unskilled made it more accessible for the majority of people for whom high-level trauma doesn't apply. Yes, right, right. And the majority of people for whom they don't, they want to do something besides an emotional cutoff or an estrangement. And there certainly are times where that is necessary, but it's far easier to begin a conversation about how can I get to know my parents again? How can I ask my parents to get to know me again if the frame is there has been, there have been many years of unskilled, emotionally unskilled behavior. It's a more open door than the good, bad kind of a thing. Yeah. Okay. You've hinted at this a couple of times, but I want to really like drill down. You write that we stay stuck in habits that do not serve us because we avoid our own truth. And in fact, you say that the opposite of addiction is honesty. So can you please tell us more about that? I got a lot of angry DMs when I put that out there. You did. I did. (laughs) Like, how could you say that? Don't you understand? It's like, I, I, have you read any of the 5,000 things I wrote before that? Like I identify as someone who struggled with addiction for years and years and years and years. I'm not saying that addicts are bad. I'm saying that what is the definition of addiction? It's a compulsive flight from a painful reality that 
eventually gets worse and worse and worse and costs your life and all of that. But the symptom of addiction is not the same, like we talked about earlier. The function of addiction is pain avoidance. And so what's the opposite of avoidance? It's confronting. And so the opposite of addiction is not sobriety because you can be equally full of shit, chemical free as you can high on heroin. The opposite of addiction is, are you willing to own and name and look at what is true for you and about you and that happened to you? Like all of the things you cannot be in truth and in addiction at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. I remember talking to somebody who is in recovery, who talked about that when he relapsed, reaching for a drink was the very, very, very last step of a very long process that began with him lying to himself in very, very, very sneaky, quiet, louder, louder, louder ways than then. So the drinking was actually the very last step in that sequence. Yeah, the self, you know, and again, not everyone identifies as an addict, but everybody knows what it's like to tell these little white lies, the chief of which is, January 1st, I'm going to get this under control. January 1st, I'm going to set my resolutions or I'll do it tomorrow. These are all lies. And again, no shame. Like, it's just like, it's just not true. Like, I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow. Like, no, you're not. So can it be okay that you're not? And let's look at your choice points that are actually available to you realistically. Because if you focus on what's true, you're going to move. If you spin in fantasy, you're going to stay stuck. Yeah. So this is the part of the book where you do another chart. I think this is my favorite chart of all, where you are inviting us into truth. And I think that people, when the stuckness is around a relationship, I think what people get scared of is that the truth is, I want to end this relationship. And there are lots and lots of potential truths, right? There are lots and lots of ways that we may be lying to ourselves that are nothing to do or relatively less to do with whether or not we're going to stay or go. And they have to do with more subtle shifts that we are going to make in the relationship dynamic that will actually help us get clearer on that ultimate question of stay or go. And so you have a process for kind of helping somebody sift through that where you talk about like the triggering event, like what's the thing that happened? What we tell ourselves is column two. What we actually feel is column three. And then the behavior that comes from that. So you did one where you say, like you get in a fight with your mother. That's the triggering event. The what we tell ourselves is it's fine. She is who she is. The what we actually feel is ashamed, betrayed, angry, sad. And then the behavior is you eat a whole box of cookies and then you think your primary issue is food addiction. I think that's a really helpful kind of step-by-step teasing apart about what you're talking about when you're talking about truth. The truth is emotional truth, right? Very often about like what I actually feel versus it's fine, not a big deal. I must've done something to set them off or whatever it is. And we gaslight ourselves out of that all the time. And then that chart is that comes directly from um, rational emotive behavioral therapy or REBT, which is a wonderful model that's largely inaccessible to people because it's got a big long name and not everyone knows that it's a thing. And rational emotive behavior therapy basically does let's tease out what's really happening here. It's like, no, it's fine, but is it like, no, I'm I'm good, but are you? No, I'm not mad, but like you are. And so any time we're separating, and I'm not talking about objective truth, like what's reality and what is the state of, I'm just like, are you actually mad? Are you actually sad? If so, fine, let's deal with it. 
And we're not taught, I certainly wasn't, I don't know about you, that this is what a feeling is. Here's how a feeling organizes itself in your body, in your physiology, and here's what you can do about it. Feelings were terrifying. Like the first time I think I felt a feeling other than angry was, you know, my 20s. I'm like, what is this? I don't like this. This is shame. This is sad. I, mm, nope. No, thank you. So we need to make feeling what we feel and knowing what we know small enough and safe enough that we'll be willing to do it. Yes. And those little truths then help us get clear on the big truth of how sustainable this relationship is, for example. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the, the do I say or do I go question, which I have a lot of empathy and compassion for because it's a tough question. Even when it's objectively bad, doesn't matter whether it's shades of unhealthy or objectively bad, do I stay or do I go is a terrifying prospect because it upsets the status quo. So again, we want to uncouple what you're actually thinking and feeling from what decision you're going to make. Because a lot of people think if I look at, like you just said, if I look at this, I'm going to end up having to leave. What if we made it okay that no matter what you discover, you don't have to do anything? Like no matter what you discover, the only time I would intervene on that is if children were involved. But if, as long as children are not being harmed by this relational dynamic, what if it was totally okay for you to identify everything wrong and then still give yourself permission to stay? And having the permission to do whatever you want without a, if you see this, you have to do this, that frees up space for reality and self-exploration and self-knowledge to sort of creep back in. Okay, before I wrap us up, I want to do a little speed round because you end the book with uh, working with a chess metaphor. So you bring in the Queen's Gambit. Yeah. Queen's Gambit. Yes. And do this really beautiful thing with this. You you have got seven moves for us. Like when we're feeling stuck, we have seven moves and they're not sequential. You're not giving us a one, two, three. You're saying, here's your palette of seven different moves and you can mix them. You can order them. You can pull them when you need them. So can we just talk them all through? Sure. Okay. So move one or rule one, which doesn't have to be the first one, but the first one you talk about is take inventory. Take inventory of what? So a business that does not take inventory will very quickly go broke. So if you look at a chessboard, you need to know what pieces are on the board. And some pieces are pieces that like just life put in your way. Like if you have a chronic illness or if you live within a certain system, kids, family, sometimes life puts pieces in there that you don't get to choose, but things like your friends and your job and your hobbies, all of the, the, the old framework that I've seen for this is like the wheel of life for each slice on the, and that's a great framework. I just wanted to use a chessboard because Queen's Gambit had been a thing when I wrote the book and I was obsessed with chess for five seconds. <laughs> and so if you look at the chessboard, name all of the different pieces. Cause a lot of times people think they're hopelessly stuck, but it's like, you're stuck over here, but you've got like nine other pieces that are working just fine. And it's not either, or it's, let's look at the whole. And so identify your pieces is something that is useful. Yep. That really holistic picture of your whole life. Okay. Two is looking for easy moves. Why do easy moves even count? I think it's just so strange that in our culture, we have learned to equate easy with not valuable. Like if something is easy, it must be cheap or just flimsy or not worthy of whatever. And it's just not true. Like 
There are no merit badges for making things hard that don't need to be hard. If there is an easy step that you can take, it's not devalued just because it's easy. It's like, well, yeah, I did a walk, but it's not like I went to the gym. It's like, no, you did the easy move. You took a walk. Cool. And I know your longer term goal is to get to the gym and do whatever. And so don't discount the easy moves because the easy moves will give you the dopamine that you need to do the harder things you want to do. But just because something is easy does not mean it is not a value. Good. Okay. Third one is make a list of three choices. So what's an example where somebody might be stuck and they would maybe come up with three choices? In a relationship that's not going well, there's nothing I can do. I feel so stuck. My whole life is stuck. There's nothing. Well, what are three choices available to you? I don't know why I feel, forget about why, forget about what are three choices? Oh, I'm not going to leave. I can't just... then that's not a choice. A choice. Number one, start going to therapy. Number two, maybe I read a book. Three, maybe I start journaling honestly and not like I, for me personally, I lied to my journal for a while. And that was one of my like, oh, maybe it's time to make some different choices because I'm lying to my journal that no one reads but me. But that's, you. if the big things on your plate are too big, make it smaller. Because if you make something small enough, eventually you'll be able to get to three actionable things to pick from. Yep. Okay. Know which pieces can move and which pieces cannot. The more we focus on the things that we can't change, that's energy expenditure that we need to change the things we can. And so I don't like that this is my life. I got you. I'm with you on that. But there's nothing you can do about it right now. So let's like go to where, let's take that brain bandwidth, that brain juice, and like let's gas up where you can actually get moving. So a car that's blocked isn't going anywhere. So let's get to a car that's not blocked. Because sometimes if you shake the snow globe over here, then you can free up space for those trickier, stickier things. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Do, the fifth one is do one thing. Yeah, just pick something. <laughs> and if you're not doing the things on your list, it's because they're too big. And just because you think it's small, again, if you think something is small, but your brain thinks it's big, brain wins every time. Make it small enough that you can pick one and do it. Stuck becomes unstuck the second you move in any direction. Yep. Listen to feedback. This one was so cool because you you talk about, so the, the sixth one is listen to feedback and you hear you talk about GPS, how our GPS actually will not start telling us what's happening next until we start to move. That was such a clever way of framing it. So listening to feedback, like just when you start, then you open yourself up to seeing what happens next and that gives you your next move, right? Exactly. And we know GPS, if you make a wrong turn, it's going to tell you and it's going to reroute you. And making a wrong turn is not usually as bad as making no moves at all. Like if you make it, and I've made really bad choices and I've taken some really bad turns, but I needed to do that in order to like find my way and leapfrog around life until things started working again. So yeah, just go. And then this is one of my favorite ones, um, celebrate. And you are clear that celebrating is not the same thing as being positive or even being grateful during hard times. So why? What does it mean to celebrate? Why do we celebrate? So celebrating means like honor what you did. You don't have to feel like celebrating. You don't have to be grateful for everything good in your life. And celebrating people think I don't deserve to celebrate. I'm like celebrating is a brain hack. When you celebrate what you just did, you're training your brain. That was good. Do that again. So think of celebrating as just a very pragmatic way to train your brain into doing what you wanted to do. Not to mention that celebrating releases good feeling chemicals, shaming yourself, releases, I'm being reductive here intentionally, bad feeling chemicals. Celebrating just means I did a thing, yay, go me. It doesn't mean I'm done. It doesn't mean that's the end of the story. It just means I did that, go me, yay, now what's next? 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And if that is hard for you, take a look at what, like I would love for somebody if there, if there's a lot of resistance around celebrating, look at your family of origin. How'd your family of origin dole out praise? How high was the bar for praise? And then you get to create a new relationship with celebration. I feel like I talk a lot about that because it is, it is just so important to keep us in the, in the change game, in the progress game, in the, you know, game of getting unstuck for sure. Yes. And if the celebration is causing you harm, like our culture has labeled things as celebrations that are not, they're like massive dissociation parties. If the thing you're doing is harming you, that's not celebratory. Like if you're a drinker, having one glass of wine might feel celebratory. Having three bottles is not. So whatever the thing is that you're doing to celebrate, the line between celebration and harm comes from like, what's actually true about this thing? Are you celebrating or are you numbing using the thing? Oh, that's really important. Yep. Britt, I have loved spending this time with you. You have just offered so much like good stuff for people to work with and dive more deeply into. And just a chance to get to know you. I have loved having the chance to get to know you. So thank you so much for being here with me today. This is so fun. Thank you so much. I could talk about this for hours. Okay, where do people go if they want to get? So we obviously are going to put links in the show notes to your new book, The Science of Stuck breaking through inertia to find your path forward. So that book is available wherever books are sold. Yes. And then what else? How else can people get to know you? Oh, come find me on Instagram and say hello. It's just at Brit Frank and Brit has two T's. And my website is www.scienceofstuck.com. Wonderful. I can't wait till our paths cross again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brit for bringing your compassion and your energy to this conversation and inspiring all of us to chart new paths in our lives and seek the support that we need and deserve. You can find Brit's book, The Science of Stuck, linked in the show notes. I really, truly enjoyed it and I highly recommend it to you. Until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.